Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue on our study in the Sermon on the Mount. If using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 810. And we'll begin our time this morning uh, by thinking about something very important, and that is the rules of basketball. Specifically, I want to talk about rules as they're related to fouls. So generally speaking, fouls occur, occur when one team breaks a rule and the other team will then get possession of the ball, or if there are enough fouls or the fouls are done under the right circumstances, the other team will get to shoot free throws. Now, one category of fouls is that you cannot hit someone while they are shooting the ball. Now, we can understand the purpose of this foul is for the safety of the players so that you cannot tackle someone to prevent them from scoring, but also to create a watchable game by not making it impossible to score points. But there was a time in professional basketball history where people used these rules, rules about fouls, not for their particular intended purpose, but for their own advantage. Let me tell you a little story about a young man named Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal, Shaq to his friends, (laughs) was a basketball player from 1992 to 2008. And in a league of giants, he was one of the most giant figures. Shaq was listed at 7 foot 1 and 325 pounds. When I was growing up, again, basketball in the 90s, uh, there was an athletic store in my hometown mall. For those under 30, I'll explain malls later. But for now, in this mall at the shoe store, there was a replica of Shaq's shoe. And it was immense. It looked fake. It was so big. Especially earlier in his career, Shaq was in many ways unstoppable and unguardable. And so some really smart people came up with the idea of Hack-A-Shack. The, the idea was this, largely due to his side, Shaq was terrible at free throws. Again, you see him holding this basketball, and it looks like a softball in his hands. So the idea was that it was better to foul him to prevent him from making the normal shot because you knew he would miss all the free throws. So the other team used the rules that were meant to keep people safe and the game fair to their advantage to make it harder for Shaq to score. And it's this misuse of the rules that I want us to use to help us understand the biblical text today. What connects these two topics in the next section of the Sermon on the Mount is that in both sections you have people misusing rules and traditions for their own advantage rather than following them for their original intent. And so specifically today, we're going to see how laws and traditions around marriage and oaths will be used not to support marriage or to encourage truthfulness, 
but to actually cheapen marriage and encourage deceit. So let's look at that first topic there as we talk about marriage, looking at verses 31 to 32 of Matthew chapter 5. Follow along as I read. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have this restatement of tradition, of what was practiced in that culture. You see that in verse 31. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In some ways, we can view this as a summary of the laws around marriage found in Deuteronomy verse 24, verses 1 to 4. Let me read sections of that. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance. So again, looking at verse 31 as a distillation of what I just read you, I hope you notice that something is missing. In verse 31, in this short statement that used by the culture of that time, there is no reference to the wife's indecency, which in the Deuteronomy passage was the means by which the divorce proceedings would take place. Now, Jesus addresses this in the next part of the verse when he talks about sexual immorality. But before we get there, we must notice a few things. I think it is particularly significant that they omitted any reference to indecency. And it seems to me to make the emphasis of the law giving the certificate. And as I will continue to say throughout this section of the passage, the point of these laws is to protect and value marriage. The point of the laws is not that people are really good at paperwork. Now, we'll have our annual meeting after the service, and let me use that as an example for what I mean by this. Let's say one of your friends here, one of your fellow members, stands up in the meeting and says something that's really inappropriate, and you go up to them after the meeting and try to talk to them about it. And their response is, it's okay, I followed Robert's rules of order, and I waited until I was called upon to speak. Now the reason we use those rules is to give order and structure to the meeting. But the point is not to follow the rules. And following the rules does not absolve the person of what they said that was inappropriate. Similarly, The point of these laws was to protect and value marriage, and particularly to protect the women in these situations, and I'll say more about that later. The point was not simply to create the right certificate. 
The seriousness of these laws needs to point us to the truth as it was from the beginning. God loves marriage and hates divorce. Referencing Jesus' words later in Matthew during another discussion of marriage, Jesus says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We need to see that filling out the right paperwork does not mean that you value God's gift of marriage. Now Jesus continues in verse 32 because again, as we've seen before, Jesus is helping us understand the Old Testament commands. And so we see in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We should notice that Jesus does give an exception to the rule, that there are situations in which divorce is permissible. But one thing we need to see here is that just because something is permissible does not mean it is required or encouraged. We should also quickly note that there are other parts of the Bible that speak to divorce. And historically, the church has understood divorce as permissible in cases of sexual immorality, in cases of abandonment, and in cases of abuse. And if you have further questions about that, I'd love to talk with you at another time. But specific to our text, what Jesus is trying to tell us is that divorce must only happen in exceptional circumstances. And that leads to the second truth that we need to notice about the omission of indecency from the original command. And that's this, in leaving out any reference to sin or indecency, it created circumstances where the culture allowed many more reasons for divorce. As one New Testament scholar notes, by Jesus' day, however, some even taught that it could be some imperfection in the wife as trivial as her serving her husband food accidentally burned. In omitting any reference to sin and placing the emphasis simply on the certificate, it removed any limiting factor to the divorce proceedings. If nothing is mentioned, then everything is acceptable. God's people must love marriage, and filling out the right paperwork is simply not enough. Now, I want to come back to this idea of the certificate because I think it misses, it's important to see how they miss the point. Let me read to you again from Matthew 19, where Jesus again speaks about marriage. So he has said, beginning in verse 6 for context, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We've already seen that the main point of the laws on marriage was so that people would value marriage. But another aspect to this certificate is that it was a way for God to limit the damages of divorce. For example, in the culture of that day and in some cultures around our world, women can be victims of how easily and informally a divorce can happen. A silly example, it always makes me think of the old TV show, The Office, where Michael Scott declares bankruptcy by simply walking out into the office and shouting, I declare bankruptcy. This certificate was meant to help protect a woman from a man who declares a divorce, but then the next day changes his mind and requires the woman to return to him. The certificate was there to limit the damage done by the hardness of heart of the people. And this is one category of law that we find in the Old Testament. God is not using the law to encourage bad behavior, but to limit the damaging effects of the behavior. By way of of summary of this part of the passage and to pull us back into the context of the Sermon on the Mount I want to say this, that if we truly belong to the kingdom of Jesus, if we are truly his disciples, then we will honor and cherish marriage. We will not simply look for loopholes or paperwork that we can use to our advantage to get what we want, but we will truly value and honor the gift of marriage as those laws were intended to do. Let's move on to the second topic here, and that's the topic of oaths found in verses 33 to 37. Follow along as I read. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, verse 33 gives us the statement, the tradition, the summary of the law as found in the culture of that time. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. If you promise to do something, you should do it. But then Jesus tells the people, do not take an oath at all. And what follows are examples of the different oaths taken at this time. There are prohibitions to swearing by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, grounded in their relationship to God. The prohibition against swearing against your hair is grounded in the fact that you have no control over your hair growing white. But why doesn't Jesus want us to use oaths? Again, there's something very true about that statement. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Why would Jesus then say, don't make an oath? Again, we need to come back to the intended purpose of these oaths. 
So as one author writes, oaths were designed to encourage truthfulness or to make truthfulness the more solemn and sure. We see this in our own cultural history. I swear on my mother's grave. Or if we're in the courtroom, we place our hand on the Bible and we are sworn in and end by saying, so help me God. Interestingly, the Bible even uses the language of oaths to talk about God the Father. Hebrews 6 says this, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What seems to be the main problem here is that the culture was not following its own rule, but rather had created such a complicated web of rules around oaths that they had really neutered the idea of an oath. Again, one New Testament scholar tells us this, for example, one rabbi said that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. The swearing of oaths thus degenerates into terrible rules which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you can't. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth and promote deceit. Swearing evasively becomes the justification for lying. And in fact, Jesus calls this out later in the book of Matthew. Let me read from Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for what is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Here's what we see when we put those together. The tool meant to promote truth becomes the vehicle for lies and deception. Now there's a natural question for us, because I think this is one of the ways in which our culture is different from the culture in which Jesus lived. Why include a section about oath-taking? At first glance, this might not be seem as important as the other things that we've talked about, such as adultery, marriage, and murder. But we need to remember the world in which this was written. This is a world without iPhones and cameras. More so than our own world, legitimate testimony was at the center of the legal system and social cohesion. Honoring your word and speaking the truth holds society together. So what is the godly response to all of this? To this culture creating a complicated system in which the tool of truth becomes the tool of lies? Jesus comes in with verse 37, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Followers of Jesus speak the truth. 
And we need to understand this in relation to God, that our God is the God who speaks the truth. In fact, in John 14, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And if our God is a speaker of truth, then his people should be speakers of truth. We don't need a fancy oath to speak the truth. Let what you say be simply yes or no. And specifically here, we need to speak the truth and avoid any attempts to cover or justify our lies. When I was a kid, I don't know how widespread this cultural phenomenon was, but if you crossed your fingers and you lied, it somehow made it okay, or it was the response of the person, they should have known you were lying because you had your fingers crossed. Or to reference one of the original Star Wars movies, Return of the Jedi, where a lie was true, quote, from a certain point of view. We are masters at justifying our lies. And we're so good at it, we can even use the tools meant to promote truth to make our lies okay. God's people must be known as a people who speak the truth. Anything else, look at that last phrase there, comes from evil. Or it could also be translated from the evil one. As Jesus says in John 8, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And so in this section on oaths, we, we get this question, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the liar or are you going to follow Jesus? And if you say you follow Jesus, then you need to be a person known for speaking the truth. Who doesn't look for the loopholes? Who doesn't look for ways to justify the lies? Who isn't walking around with their fingers crossed behind their back? A couple thoughts as we conclude this morning. Again, I'm going to state these from a positive perspective because I think that's what these laws and traditions are meant to do. So the first conclusion is to honor marriage. God loves marriage and hates divorce. And instead of focusing on filling out the right paperwork, Jesus is calling us to see that his people value and honor marriage. In wanting to use the laws to their own advantage, the people miss the point that divorce should only be saved for exceptional circumstances. And this is an area in which we are not aided by the larger outside culture. In our culture, divorce can be as vague as being over irreconcilable differences. Listen, we are all sinful individuals. There are always irreconcilable differences. The church must protect and value marriage. Divorce must be saved for the hardest of circumstances, and even then it is permitted, not promoted. Let me close this section of the conclusion with this appeal. If your marriage is in trouble, you need to tell somebody. Oftentimes, when people come, it is so late in the process 
that so much harm has been done before they're finally able to be honest about it. And it makes the work so much harder. If you need help in your marriage, come talk to me. Talk to the elders. We've done this before. We know what we're doing. And we want to help you not just get by, but to thrive in your marriage. Secondly, speak the truth. Under the context of oaths in that culture, I want to focus on this application to the idea. Speak the truth even when you benefit from lying. The culture in the time of Jesus had twisted the cultural tool of truth-telling into a tool of deception. We need to be people who are not looking for the loophole of deceit, but rather let what we say be simply yes or no. We need to speak the truth even to those with whom we agree or whom we view as allies. Along with that, we need to speak the truth even when the other side or other people involved do not. We need to speak the truth even when it costs us. Better to lose and tell the truth than to lie and win. What ties these two parts of the passage together is the theme of using the rules not for what they were intended for, but to our own advantage. We need to be people not trying to escape responsibility or to justify our lies, but if we truly belong to Jesus, we will be people who honor marriage and speak the truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. That we would not seek to use your word and to manipulate it to our own advantage. But that we would be people who truly follow your word. That we would love and value and honor marriage. And that we would speak the truth no matter what no matter what it costs us, but that we would be a people who have a reputation of letting our yes be yes and our no be no. God, that by your Spirit, you would empower us to live these commands out, to live more like Jesus, and that you would transform us through your word to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.